unlocked to Switch FM 94.3, the station with NYC mashup DJs. Radio Élégance, la reine de la voix antillaise à New York, son programme C'est-à-Tierre, dédié à... These are the sounds of Pirate Radio in Brooklyn, New York. We learn more on today's Radio Survivor. Welcome to Radio Survivor, the sound of strong communities. My name is Paul Reesmanel, and uh, Eric Klein cannot be here today. But filling in ably all the way from Brooklyn, New York, we have a frequent Radio Survivor guest, Professor John Anderson. Welcome, John. Hello. It's nice to be back. Thank you for joining us. And on the line, also from Brooklyn, New York, we have David Gorin. He's a public radio producer, and he's been looking at the enormous pirate radio scene in in that uh, borough of New York City. Welcome, David. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Paul. Hi, John. How's it going, David? Good. Excellent. All through the wonders of technology, joined here on Radio Survivor. And our topic today is, is pirate radio in Brooklyn, New York. And folks who, who've been following Radio Survivor, who've listened to previous episodes of the show, know that we talk about pirate radio uh, not as a sensationalist topic, but really to kind of situate it as, as, a, uh, as a communications medium that is often kind of a last resort or one of the resorts for people who are not well represented in the mainstream media. And, and David Gorin, um, he's been, he's been tracking, uh, the many, many pirates in, in, in Brooklyn, New York. And, and David, can you give us a sense for how many unlicensed radio broadcasters you think there might be operating in the borough of Brooklyn? Yes. Uh, on a typical night, the stations switch on, sign on late afternoon by eight o'clock, they're at full strength, which from my listening post in Flatbush, Brooklyn, means I can hear over 30 stations. Um, Most that are broadcasting from Flatbush and also from Midwood and a couple from East New York. I can hear a few more from some of the other boroughs too. Each borough of New York City, except perhaps Manhattan and Staten Island, have their own pirate radio um, neighborhoods. Really? And so... uh... From Flatbush, can you give me a sense geographically for people who aren't, who aren't from the New York area? Uh, so sort of probably from Manhattan, uh, where, where, where are you located then? Is it, that's a little bit to the uh, east and south there? I'm very roughly in the middle between Coney Island and lower Manhattan. So uh, Flatbush is, is sort of in the middle there. I was just going to ask, uh, David, how did you stumble across the scene in the first place? I know that you have a previous history of exploring like the shortwave uh radio bands you've got a great website uh what is it shortwaveology yeah um and you know uh it's not like shortwave and fm or am are contiguous to each other so what was it that made you actually uh you know get hip to the notion that this you know underground radio scene existed and delved into the extent that you have well I think on any radio band, be it AM, FM, or shortwave, 
there exist stations that build community. I think these sta- a lot of these stations, commercial or otherwise, sort of are another sort of invisible neighborhood in the air that reflect what's going on on the ground. So in the 80s, when I was in my early 30s, you know, certainly listening to FM radio was a big part of what you would listen to for music and culture and public radio. What I was looking for on shortwave or FM was really the unusual. And there's a history of pirate radio on shortwave. And I was aware of pirate radio on FM. But when I was living primarily in Washington, D.C., there was no pirate radio. And Mm. in the mid-80s, I started commuting up to New York um, to see my girlfriend, who's now my wife. And instantly, just from trolling the dial, which was already more interesting than what you would have in Washington, D.C., because there was a lot more diversity uh, because of all the different cultures that live in New York City, I noticed that primarily on the weekends and primarily on frequencies that were sort of in the clear, 91.9 was the big pirate frequency, and 91.5 after WNYE, the local school board-owned station, signed off, pirates would come on the air almost always late at night and on the, and on the weekends. They would play rock music. It, to me, and thinking back on it, they were sort of like tech pranksters. They really wanted to be on the air, and figuring out the technology of getting on the air was almost as important as what they were broadcasting on the air, which yeah. for a lot of them, like WHOT and WFUN, which were actually the same guys, and on Long Island, there was a number of stations, WAXY. Um, they were playing rock and, and oldies. And um, they also, I think, enjoyed sort of jousting with the FCC. Because at that time, with a relatively few amount of pirates on the air, the FCC would go after them. And also in those days, unlike today, it really seemed it was a taboo to get on the air. You really were crossing a line when you put a pirate station on the air. So I kept listening and I noticed when I moved up here in 1990 that suddenly there was a rise in the number of stations and they would also come on earlier, like really coming out into the light of of day because before they would be on late in part to escape the notice of the FCC. Yeah, working working on the notion that they keep banker's hours or something like that. so you've actually seen, uh, you've experienced the pirate radio scene in Brooklyn and, you know, by extension, the five boroughs actually, uh, expand over time. What do you think has changed, uh, you know, that, that taboo notion of, uh, you know, crossing a line and putting a signal on the air between, you know, then and now, is it just the democratization of technology? Is it the fact that, you know, the FCC doesn't have the muscle to enforce the license requirement? Uh, I mean, are there other dynamics at play? Well, I I think starting in the 90s and around the time of the Telecommunications Act is the dial began began to become less diverse. Prices were skyrocketing. I mean, there were many, you know, diverse communities on the air, the South Asian community, and there was uh, an FM frequency that would broker time to Caribbean broadcasters. So there were some outlets, but those outlets started to go away. And I believe that also in that time frame in the mid-90s, from what I've heard talking to different people, that the enforcement was cut back. 
And also there was a new wave of easier to use um, technology that you could, and also with the dawn of the internet, even though you couldn't really um, stream audio because the bandwidth was too small at that time, you could trade information and schematics. And then there was also the burgeoning micro-broadcasting movement, which I know you can speak to really well, John. Yeah. Uh, did you see a lot of overlap? I know that there are, for example, you know, pirate radio stations that were explicitly political, especially like in the 90s and early 2000s. I'm thinking of things like Steal This Radio in uh, the Lower East Side or uh, Free 103.9 uh, up in Williamsburg. Um did you see a lot of connections in the pirate scene uh, with that movement or were those kind of like one-offs and this, this has been going on irrespective of the political conditions for quite some time. The communities that were broadcasting like pirate radio became big in the Caribbean community. And um, I've also made a documentary on WBAD, a mid nineties hip hop station, which basically captured the audience for underground hip hop away from the legal commercial hip-hop station, Hot 97. I've talked with DJ Sintronics of WBAD. He had no knowledge at all of a micro-broadcasting scene in terms of the progressive and the people coming from the art world who who were using it. it they were really two separate worlds. Wow, that's interesting. So I guess it kind of shows that the uh, desire uh, to access the airwaves is something that can kind of transcend politics and will continue in some respects, irrespective of what the political conditions are. That's interesting. Something I didn't really fully understand. Yes. Although the, the worlds, they collided if they knew each other at all, at least from my research, there might be more to the story that I haven't discovered yet, but I know that free one of 3.9 got a visit from WBAD because (laughs) WBAD primarily came on the air on Sunday nights. Um, at the time that Hot 97, the commercial hip-hop station, went to talk and then reggae programming. So what DJ Centronics would do, he called it killing the bugs. He and his mentor, Dr. X, who ran another sort of rule-breaking station, uh, which was somewhere around Long Island City, WJQR Nasty Radio. They specialized in profanity (laughs) and and really wild uh, phone calls that they would receive from their listeners. Dr. X and DJ Syntronics would put on like sort of matching blue button-up shirts. They had a homebrew, a tracking device, and they would go to stations that were on their frequency, 91.9. And this started to increase. They came on there in 95, and towards the end of their tenure, 98, they were being interfered with all the time. So they would go to a station and knock on the door, they'd be standing there, and they sort of wanted to give the impression that they were from the FCC. They'd knock on the door, and if they opened, they'd say, can we see your license? And usually Uh the door would slam shut, and the station would go off the air. In other cases, they would, you know, say, you're on a frequency. You know, we were here first. We have rights to this frequency. And in one case, the the other pirate said, screw you. So DJ Syntronics... uh, they tracked down where the wires to the station were and they cut them. <laughs> wow. Those yeah. that's kind of shades of what goes on in London is my understanding. In, exactly. in that scene. Yeah. yeah. Where, where the pirates really sort of actively compete. And because the uh, antennas and, and transmitters are often placed on top of tower blocks, these tall um, public housing high rises, um, 
and are have to be sort of subterfuged in, they'll look for a competing uh, transmitters, uh, you know, power line or even even antenna and cut them and 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 uh, do some sabotage. And I hadn't really ever heard of that much happening in the United States, but I guess in a scene like Brooklyn, which is a fairly densely populated area and also densely populated with stations, there's always that chance. David, have you heard uh, of that sort of um, competition or active kind of uh, sabotage happening uh, since then, since uh, the WBAD went off the air in 1998? I've I've heard a few instances of it, um, like reading up that a studio was trashed by perhaps by another station or by the son of an owner who went berserk. You know, there seems to be some of that tension going on. What you hear more commonly, especially among pirates is one pirate broadcasting, say from outside of the area in the, during the day, the amount of stations are at a low. Uh, I say they go down to like between five and 10, but that allows me to hear stations in other boroughs uh, or or in parts of New Jersey, a little more easily. So, say about four o'clock, there's a station from West Orange, New Jersey, called uh, La Main Street. They're play for Equi- people from Ecuador. Um, so they play an Andean-influenced kind of music, and they come on around drive time, and they have very lively, uh, exciting DJs, and they're on a frequency 91.7. So they're on for about an hour, and then here in Flatbush, Another local station comes on and just stomps them down. And you can't hear them anymore. So I think there's warfare. Um, in that in that way too now so it's more but, of a, uh, a warfare using their signal strength uh rather than traveling out to west orange and uh actively sabotaging from, from what i know and i think dj syntronics would say that they he really tried to cooperate you know although he felt he had a, a right to the station he hoped to be invited in and then to work out some sort of sharing plan with the frequency it was only when um he couldn't talk to the person or there was defiance, then he would assert his, what he felt was his right to the frequency because he'd been there already for a couple of years. And that's the voice of David Gorin. He's a public radio producer who's been investigating and documenting the uh, really active pirate radio scene, unlicensed radio scene in Brooklyn, New York. And I'm also joined by John Anderson who is a professor of journalism at Brooklyn College and who has also been an active scholar tracking pirate radio since the 1990s. He's been a frequent guest here on Radio Survivor. My name is Paul Reismandel, and this is The Sound of Strong Communities. Uh, so, David Gorin, you have uh, some active projects right now in trying to document this scene of unlicensed broadcasting. Um, I know that you're working on something called the Brooklyn pirate radio sound map. Can you tell us more about this project? Yes. It's my attempt to, after listening to this very active scene for the past 20 years to try to make some sense of it. I've been doing a lot of investigative listening and recording. There's no central authority, which regulates these stations. 
no way to look up what's there. They're, they really have been undercovered in the media. So starting about four years ago, I started to record all the time. And now I've made this map that's been funded by the Brooklyn Arts Council, where it has a tuner interface and zones in Brooklyn, uh, the major pirate radio neighborhoods, mostly Flatbush, but also East New York and Flatbush Midwood, where there are, are a few Orthodox Jewish radio stations. is jrootradio.com the Jewish station that listens to you check out our feature packed website or download the jroot radio pro app available for apple and android devices for a one of a kind interactive torah learning and jewish music experience because there are heavily orthodox jewish neighborhoods there so the way the map works is when you load it it starts playing a station and then you can tune these are archival samples, but you can tune through them, and each frequency has the name of the station, a descriptor about what the file is playing, and then you can also hear an archive of additional sounds from the station. So I would say that this tuner has about 300 samples that you can listen to from the stations that have been on over the past four years. Some of them are off, but usually the ones that go are are replaced by news stations and when you click on a zone on the map you also get a list where you can click and the station will be able to be tuned by the tuner and there's also a website um that will go with it connected to the map and it ha will have a sonic essay basically a four-part essay with sound samples uh one's called immigrant waves which looks at the current scene, making waves is history, clandestine waves are sort of the environment, the legal environment that the stations um, are operating under, and future waves, what might happen to this scene. Uh, what we were talking earlier about sort of the, how stations would cut each other's wires, and does that happen now? And I think it, it still may, but I think also the station is, the scene, the pirate scene now, is it's in its mature phase. It's been going on for about 20 years when it shifted from these sort of kids playing radio, tech pranksters, to communities that began to go on the airwaves because they um, programmers there perceived a need for this kind of programming. And why do you think this is an important thing to document in this way? Like, what you know, for for a lot of people. I think it's an annoyance for some people. They don't pay attention. Obviously for licensed broadcasters, many of them find it to be much more of an annoyance. Uh, the FCC has made uh, combating pirate radio a priority. We have one commissioner, Michael O'Reilly, who, who in particular has made that part of uh, his agenda. Uh, why does this deserve to be uh, put into the historical canon, if you will? Well, the content is very culturally rich and very reflective of, of a New York City neighborhood. So on a typical, typical station like the Boom Station or Triple Nine, you will hear um, DJs promoting their club gigs and doing sets on the radio. You'll hear hosts who will bring in 
a lawyer to talk about immigration concerns to the community and people will call up and describe their family situations and get advice. Uh, restaurants with the, the flavors of the local culture will advertise. So I think these stations, though they can be a nuisance in the way they operate, and unlike the older pirate scene where they really took pains not to interfere, that used to, I think, be the pirate credo. Now it's it seems like they don't care because there there is a lot of interference and a lot of technical issues. But at the same time, there is extremely local, really vibrant programming, direct from churches, direct from clubs. I think it deserves to be cataloged. And also, since it's so ephemeral, even though some of these stations have been on decades, others come and go. And no one is making a record of these stations. And I, I felt it's important to, ha- to have this down. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when people think of Brooklyn now, it's kind of a very different place than it was 20 years ago. I think, you know, now people think of Brooklyn as this very hip place full of uh, young middle-class people uh, and creatives trying to, uh, you know, making artisanal things and, and doing art and such. And as you talk about this pirate scene, you know, you've mostly mentioned smaller communities, you know, who are not necessarily uh, white middle-class folks or, or, or people who you might uh, term as hipsters, but you've talked about Caribbean communities, Orthodox Jewish communities. Does it seem like there's any overlap there are people who you know are might be making uh roasting their own artisanal coffee are they engaged in pirate radio or are these very stratified and is that sort of key to understanding the scene i think that they're stratified and i think it's key as john was talking about earlier in the late 90s there was the east village station and free 1039 and others that were politically and artistically connected probably largely to white communities, if I may dangerously generalize. The stations that started to come on in the mid-90s were for audiences that are underserved. And even though Brooklyn does have this reputation, you know, as being the hipster borough, there are huge neighborhoods that break down among, you know, ethnic lines or or communities that, that are very diverse. There's a a very big Asian community. There's Pakistani, there's Russian. But what's interesting to me, and I'm trying to find out a little more about this, is the largest amount of stations um, in Brooklyn broadcast to the Caribbean community. And I think the Caribbean community in Flatbush and East Flatbush is huge. There's um, the Haitian community numbers well over 80,000, and that's the documented. People, I would, and I would say from my research that the Haitian stations. I said earlier I hear over three thirty stations a night, close to three dozen. A third of those are broadcasting in Haitian Creole to the Haitian community. Radio Elegance, la reine de la voix antillaise à New York. Son programme s'étatière, dédié à. Fettner, fanatique de Mont-Jean-Baptiste. Because the community is really large. So there's a lot of media directed towards the Caribbean community. Jamaican 
Jamaicans and Grenadians, Guyanese and Trinidadians also have a lot of stations that are targeting them. John Anderson, you've been following uh, Pirate Radio now, again, for, for about, as, about as long as, as David Gorin has. And, you know, you've longer. only... Yeah, longer. <laughs> well, in a different, different, in a different way, too. Like, I've been trying to take a, a nationwide look at it, trying to make overarching conclusions where David's been deep in the weeds, actually doing ethnographic research to a certain degree on, you know, what is the culture within particular neighborhoods in Brooklyn that are doing Pirate Radio. And, and and John, I want to ask you, you know, looking at the, looking at more of this nationwide trend. I mean, have you seen this same shift that uh, David notes in Brooklyn and in New York, where it went, you know, sort of started with the folks who were who were political about you know freeing the airwaves, um, maybe had an artistic bent in in terms of turning it, of doing transmission art. And that, that was a kind of a very common unifier for a lot of stations, I think, during the late 90s and early 2000s. Have we seen the same shift to radio becoming a tool of underrepresented communities um, more so than in, in this kind of community radio paradigm that, that used to exist more commonly? You know, that's a really good question, Paul, and it's a difficult question to answer. I mean – I think that there is some sort of latent desire that we have to communicate just as human beings. And, you know, there have been pirates for as long as there have been radio licenses. And if you look at the phenomenon over the last hundred years, you can find commonalities, uh, which basically boil down to the notion that I want to hear or say something uh, uh, to my community. I do not have the ability to do that through licensed means, so I'm going to have to step outside that. Whether or not people consider that to be explicitly political um, is really in you know the eye or the ear of the beholder. I would totally agree, you know, with David's uh, kind of tracing of the pirate radio history in New York is something that's fairly indicative of uh, pirate radio across the United States. Yes, it was something that was initially very difficult technologically to do. You actually had to understand radio engineering. Equipment was not readily available, so oftentimes you had to build your own uh, transmission gear. Um, but the people who did that were doing it maybe not as the top priority of being you know, a political statement, but that definitely played into things because you had to understand that you were breaking the law. You had to know enough to understand that you were breaking the law in order to do it, right? And then, you know, for reasons David's also kind of talked about, you know, the the coming of consolidation, uh, which really began kind of in the Reagan era and became uh, very prevalent after the 1996 Telecom Act and the Clinton era, made people start to recognize that uh, elements, especially local or community elements of their radio dial, were disappearing and that disenfranchised people and radicalized them. And uh, there was a movement that grew up during that time to place pressure on regulators to do that. Now, today, you know, in the 2000s and 2010s and kind of the post LPFM period, you have, I think, you know, maybe a couple, I mean, all of the other groups that we talked about before, the tinkerers, the hobbyists, the explicitly political and the community serving, they're all still in the mix. But now we have the ability to actually basically go onto amazon.com and buy everything you need to put a radio station on the air. And I know um, from talking with David that he's talked with, you know, pirates in New York city that don't even know what they're doing is illegal. Uh, uh, and, and in that case, I think that it does come back to culture, which is, um, 
you grew up in a community or a society where radio is very prevalent, like in Haiti, uh, you bring those same communicative behaviors to you, to the, to the new place where you're settling in and, and you replicate that environment. So, um, you know, whether or not people are explicitly understanding that they're flaunting the law when they're doing it, they're all driven by a very similar impetus, which is I would like to speak or hear uh, from people that I cannot uh, in the typical licensed regime. Now, as far as you know, the FCC is concerned, probably over the last 10 plus years, um, FCC enforcement has focused along the East Coast, primarily in the Boston metropolitan area the New York, New Jersey metropolitan area, and in Florida, particularly South Florida. And I keep track of enforcement actions against pirate broadcasters and have been doing so since 1997. And you can see uh, that trajectory increase over time over the last 20 years. Ironically, though, um, you know, we're in 2018 and I have yet to actually see the FCC conduct any enforcement action in New York City. Uh, we're in we're in the third month of the year and there's been nothing, uh, no raids, uh, no visits, no warning letters, no notices of apparent liability. Uh, they've been active in New Jersey and Colorado and Florida and Massachusetts and Washington and Arizona and Virginia and Oregon and uh, Tennessee, uh, but they haven't actually been in New York yet, uh, which I find very interesting because it was New York and New Jersey's broadcasters that have put the most political pressure on the FCC to try to get them to, you know, clear the airwaves and sweep the pirates off the dials. And that doesn't seem to be happening uh, right now. Do you think it's a matter of resource allocation, <laughs> you know, that, uh, they, they, maybe they're getting also complaints from the broadcasters in these other States and they're throwing them a bone, if you will. Nah. Um, I mean the same Field agents that bust pirates in New York City are the same ones that go to New Jersey. So uh, the New York field office people are traveling, you know, across the Hudson <laughs> and visiting New Jersey and, you know, visiting pirates and sending them nasty grams and things like that. I wonder if New York is maybe being pulled back on because there may be a larger, more coordinated enforcement action coming down the pike. Um, a couple of years ago, the FCC actually radically downsized its field presence across the United States. They basically closed something like a third of the local field offices around the country and consolidated those and, and also cut back the number of staff in all those offices. But when they did that, uh, this is under the Tom Wheeler, last FCC chair of the Obama administration. Um, when they did that, they also created uh, two entities that they call tiger teams. And these are supposedly... Uh, a compact group of FCC field agents who basically can swoop into hotspots and conduct, you know, pulse type enforcement activity. We haven't actually seen evidence of the Tiger teams deploying in this way, although members of the Tiger teams have gone out and gone after pirates. Um, most notably, the two teams are located in Maryland and in Denver, and just recently. Uh, because of publicity in the local pirate radio scene in Boulder, Colorado, uh, the FCC has been up there and have tried to shut pirates down there. And some of the people who went up there were members of the Tiger team. So I'm wondering if maybe the FCC is uh, concocting a, a pulse enforcement effort, similar to what we saw, you know, like 20 years ago in Florida, um, back during the height of the micro radio movement, when 
Uh, the FCC worked with the federal marshals and the FBI and conducted kind of, you know, war on drugs style <laughs> raids of stations and things. So I'm wondering if they're pulling back on the incrementalist individual enforcement and they've got some much more uh, palatable, newsworthy, big raid in the works that may come, you know, in the summer or something like that. But, but of course, they're not talking and we only know. Uh, what they're doing based on the information that they tell us or from what pirates tell us through the interactions they have. So it's a very curious uh, lack of information, a very curious lack of enforcement happening in one of the nation's hottest pirate spots, um, but it bears watching. And that's the voice of John Anderson. He's a professor of journalism at Brooklyn College, and he's the man behind DIYmedia.net. And that's where you can read much of his tracking of the FCC's enforcement action against unlicensed broadcasters, as well as his commentary about our media environment in general. That's DIYmedia.net. And this is Radio Survivor. My name is Paul Reismandel, and this is The Sound of Strong Communities. And we are talking about unlicensed radio, pirate radio in Brooklyn, and kind of nationwide, because, you know, nothing sort of happens in a vacuum, but even so there's a very particular set of cultures and practices in Brooklyn that are unique. And that is something that our guest David Gorin has been tracking. He is a public radio journalist. And he's got a number of projects where he's been really paying attention to the culture and practice of pirate radio in Brooklyn. And I wanted to follow up on a point, David, it's something that John mentioned just a couple minutes ago. And, and he said that you've talked with, radio pirates in Brooklyn who don't know what they're doing is illegal. And I guess that's yeah. that, that is sort of uh, for, for many people, I'm sure it's sort of stupefying. We just sort of all kind of understand that not everybody can have a radio station just because they have a transmitter, but I don't know. Can you fill in the gap a little bit to explain maybe where folks are coming from who, who don't realize that? It's something I'm trying to figure out. I think what I've learned from asking people on the street who do you listen to boom station? Do you listen to triple nine? Do you listen to vibes radio? Yeah. Do you know they're illegal? No. <laughs> do you care? No. The listeners don't really know. And so I think it's kind of filtered down the, the station that John's referring to. They're actually very inspiring in a way, even more than some of these stations that are just sort of promoting the DJs gigs this station which um they agreed to talk to me without identifying them they broadcast to a very poor community very poor hispanic community they credit themselves for having raised attendance uh, at community meetings they partner with the police who really don't know and they've actually been covered by local media even using their call letters but with no question that well Really, you're operating a, a a radio station from the the basement of a bodega. It doesn't really occur to people anymore. And there's so many diverse media sources now that I think we don't p think about FM radio in the way we used to. It's not the dominant end all be all. But basically, when these people put the station on the air, they you know heard about getting a transmitter online, and they were told if you keep it under 300 watts, you'll be okay. 
<laughs> under lot, 300 that's a lot of power yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and so this is sort of folk knowledge right it sounds like to me it's being passed yeah. you know it's word of mouth and i suspect you know people if you're in a community and you turn on the radio and you hear all of these stations and maybe you know if you don't know someone operating the station you know somebody who knows somebody right that, that there's this sort of uh uh circle of people who are who are in the know and it becomes much more like, well, yeah, it's just what you do. Right. I mean, I, I've spoke with people and they're like, it's, I've never questioned it. They just sound like a radio station, you know, albeit with their, with music from their culture. I think some of these stations have a low listenership. I, I've spoken with a DJ, DJ D life who was on an early Caribbean pirate um, in the mid nineties when there was very little Caribbean radio in the New York area. And he thinks at the time people knew they were pirates and they were also followed avidly because they had the, the latest underground music. They had the ear of the street. And now DJ D life says in his opinion, they don't have the ear of the people on the street. And he calls it friends and family. So some of these stations may get on the air just for a very small audience. Do you think but that those people actually do it because it's just inertia? Uh, this is what I do. Um, or do they do it because so. they still find value in transmitting via the FM airwaves to an audience? Well, both. Uh, I, th- I don't think this scene is going to go away anytime soon. And if these stations were busted, new ones would get on the air the next day. But I do think that, um, there's a lot of cultural resonance back home. It was important to have a radio station. And when, when you come here, you want to establish a similar kind of media to Haitians. Radio was very important. There were very few, there was mm-hmm. one independent radio voice in Haiti, radio Haiti. And the first, the second station to start broadcasting in Creole. Otherwise it was all in French. There was a, a station that preceded Radio Haiti and Broadcasting in Creole, Radio Lumiere, and they're on in Brooklyn. They are relayed on 87.9 uh, with occasional break-ins, uh, you know, I mean, meaning from uh, local programming will come on the air. Radio means something, and in the new country, the new home, to be established on the FM dial means you have a presence, you can exert a political presence. A lot of the, those stations have politicians on the air who who come by. And again, those politicians really may not know that it's a pirate radio station because the best of them, the ones that sound the best and have like really put thought into putting their programming together, they um, really have the, the sound. And they probably have a studio, and, right? They kind of even look kind of legit. They look like maybe a community radio station might look in some other part of the, of the, of the, of the country. Very much so. I would say over half of the stations that I hear, and also keep in mind that in the New York area, there are at least 100 pirate radio stations operating mostly to these diverse immigrant communities. Three quarters of them have websites. They have phone streams where you can dial a phone number and listen to the station. And if you look on Facebook, where these many of them broadcast on Facebook Live, so they'll be on FM, they'll be on Facebook Live, they'll publicize themselves over Twitter, they'll give out a phone number. So there's a real sort of, you know, the old days, 
they were on the air because of media scarcity, and now there's an abundance of stations. But I think they persist on FM because of the what radio used to mean, and I think also what the people in the East New York station told me when they were once I told them there were laws governing them being on the air and they could get a penalty, they were really worried. And I said, well, you know, you, if you were cited, you could go off the air at the first level and not have to pay a penalty. And he said, well, how will I reach my older listeners? Most of my listeners are in their seventies and eighties. So I think the stations that are still on the air are serving a more mature audience. A lot of the time. I think it's also important to remember that, and David, you kind of talked about this before when you were mentioning how, for example, Haitian pirates will relay information, you know, from the homeland, right? Uh, that can't be uh, heard elsewhere except maybe over the internet. Uh, and that's something, you know, like the FCC likes to say, you know, uh, the the chief Rosemary Harold, uh, you interviewed her. Uh, I think it was earlier this this year, and she made a mention of, you know, we have the internet now, and that's great, but. You know, in many of these communities, they're not dealing with uh, wired broadband connections in the home. They're dealing with pay-as-you-go plans uh, through a cell phone. And so, yes, technically, uh, you can log into their website and, you know, stream their audio through the phone up until the point that, you know, your bandwidth runs out and you have to start paying overage fees to listen to the station. Then there's the whole idea of you know, direct ownership over the means of media production. Um, Facebook is great. Facebook has a streaming component to it as well. Um, but when you move yourself and make yourself reliant on another platform to do the distribution for you, you can run into all kinds of other potential quote unquote violations like terms of service, things like that. One of the things that I like to talk to people when I'm trying to explain the importance of analog radio in a digital world is it's autonomous and it's not easily surveilled. And that may seem weird because I mean, geez, you're, you're putting out an FM signal. Anyone within the listening area can hear you. It's not like you're hiding, but it also is much more labor intensive and, and more difficult and actually involves a little bit of specialized knowledge to actually track you down. Whereas if you're trying to stream the same thing through a platform you don't control, there's an IP address involved, there's login information involved. And so if you're looking at doing this as a way of resisting something or protesting something or whatnot, uh, there is still some value kind of in the old school direct broadcast technology that that still exists. Right. Definitely. And this is Radio Survivor to Sound of Strong Communities. We're talking about pirate radio and in specific, we're talking about pirate radio in the borough of Brooklyn, New York where there's an astonishing scene. Uh, David Gorin, you're a public radio producer and reporter and journalist, and you've been tracking the scene. And you, you said there's something like about a hundred pirate radio stations in Brooklyn and in New York, no, city in, total. in, in, in New the, York city, I'm sorry, New York city in, in total. In Brooklyn, there, in, in Brooklyn, there are about 30 plus. Nevertheless, to, I'm just doing in my head here. There are not a hundred licensed stations heard in in New York City, are there? I oh mean, no, no. Uh, <laughs> uh, actually, the New York State Broadcasters Association produced a report in 2015-2016 where they uh, built a van um, with all kinds of sophisticated listening 
and direction finding equipment. Uh, they, they camouflaged it by calling it a digital television testing van. And they literally drove all around the New York City metropolitan area, um, uh, four locales, two in New York City, two in New Jersey. Uh, and they were able to pick up uh, 76 pirates um, across their study. Uh, but they estimate more than 100 authorized, unauthorized stations on the air. And according to that report, that's more unlicensed FM frequencies than there are licensed FM frequencies. So if you just do an aggregate count, there are more pirate radio stations on the air in the New York City area than there are licensed FM radio stations on the air. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. And to me, that sort of indicates in a way that there is more demand than supply, right? And that and that uh, it's definitely one of the reasons why, amongst many that we've talking about, uh, people do go on the air. Because even with it seems to me the creation of low power FM, right? Which was, which has been a service intended to help uh, less represented communities get on the air. Uh, there's still in, in a densely populated region like New York city, there's just much more demand. And, and that's a question I had. Maybe John, you can answer. Um, I mean, why hasn't something like low power FM helped to mitigate uh, this Problem, or at least as the as the New York broadcasters would see it as a problem. Um, I blame three entities for that. The first one is the National Association of Broadcasters. Uh, the second one is National Public Radio, and the third one is the United States Congress. <laughs> Back when the FCC actually proposed low power FM radio in 1999-2000, uh, they wanted to basically. Uh, redo how spectrum allocation was done on the FM dial to create spaces um, for more stations to exist. Um, the FCC has not updated its spectrum allocation rules in decades, but the technology to broadcast more efficiently and use effectively less spectrum or to be uh, produce a less interfering signal has increased over time. So the theoretical carrying capacity of the FM dial for the number of stations you can put on it has increased and the regulation hasn't kept up with that. And to the FCC's credit, you know, they admitted that. Um, but after the FCC formally promulgated its rules with this new allocation regime in place in early 2000, NAB and NPR went to Congress and they got Congress to pass a rule, a, a law called ironically the radio broadcasting preservation act um, and their lobbying argument was, if we try to shoehorn in all these little stations on the FM dial, we'll create chaos of interference on the airwaves. And the law effectively um, rolled back the relaxation to the spectrum allocation that the FCC was trying to do. So under the early you know, plan that the FCC had put out and said, this is what we want to go with, New York City could have had multiple LPFM stations in all five boroughs. Once the radio broadcasting preservation was act was put into place, and you know political uh, interests trumped technological reality, suddenly, magically, uh, there were not as many open frequencies. I think there's like one LPFM station somewhere in Queens. David, you'd you'd mentioned this in in prior talks we've had, like a Chinese uh, based LPFM station in Queens. Somewhere. Yeah. In, in, in Flushing. And there right. is also one, uh, Asian pirate station as well. I think there might be one or two more frequencies that I've heard that might come on. Um, but I, there are not many. And yeah. also one thing that's happening 
what's crowding the band and has even crowded off some of the pirate stations have been translators, new mm-hmm. translator stations. There have probably been at least five that have covered over some of the prime pirate frequencies. I know you, you could probably speak to that, John, about the yeah, translator. I mean, the, only, the only difference between an LPFM station and a translator is a translator is two and a half times more powerful by law. I can broadcast with up to 250 watts where LPFM stations are limited to 100. Uh, translators can put their antennas anywhere, like on the top of skyscrapers. Um, LPFM stations can only put it up about 100 feet in the air, and that's a huge limiting factor for FM radio coverage. Um, and the other ironic thing is translators cannot originate live programming, <laughs> whereas LPFM is live and local. So going back to you know Paul's question about uh, how come LPFM hasn't helped this, well, initially, you know, to credit the FCC, they tried. Um, the dominant political incumbents that exert the most influence over uh, Congress got a law passed that basically made the FCC revise their allocation for LPFM. And then between the start of LPFM and today, we've seen four times as many of these FM translator rebroadcasting stations put on the air than the number of actual LPFM stations that have been created. Um, so in some ways, you know, the FCC and Congress, more Congress, kind of shot themselves in the foot because there were a lot of people who were part of that micro radio movement in the 90s or found out about LPFM through things like dissatisfaction with radio consolidation, who were really into you know, doing it legal. Um, there's a guy in Boulder who was all ready to apply for an LPFM station. He bought all the equipment and then suddenly after the Radio Broadcasting Preservation Act was passed, that frequency, quote-unquote, disappeared. And that radicalized him, and he went on the air without a license. So in some cases, there are elements of the current pirate radio uh, ecosystem that wouldn't have existed had politicians and regulators handled LPFM properly. So, you know, it's it's kind of a complicated mix. And about six years ago, we had an update to that law. We had the Local Community Radio Act. Um, which re-liberalized, or, sh- or shall we say, you know, re-implemented those original technical specifications, allowing more low-power FM stations on the air, especially in urban areas. We've talked about it quite a bit here at Radio Survivor. Um, why didn't that make an impact in in Brooklyn and in New York City? Because all of a sudden um, you could you could put you you had those those uh, standards could now be applied, and ostensibly there were some more open frequencies. Why didn't that make much of a dent? Well, without getting you know too deep into the weeds of what happened in 1999 and what happened in you know 2010, 2011, 2012, um, what the FCC originally proposed was even a more liberal relaxation of the allocation rules than what the formal proposal went out. So, and so that was what was uh, proposed back in 2000, and then right. was undone. And so, um, what happened in, in most recently? Not quite as loose, but I guess I guess more. My question is, and I'll ask you maybe more specifically: is 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 it just simply the case that you know from 2000 to uh, 2013, would there just simply fewer fewer spots in the dial left? Period. Where there could be well, an LPFM. I would I would kind of you know cite this to maybe three uh, possible reasons. Um, the first one is is as David mentioned, the rise of FM translators. So. Uh, there would have been the potential for more LPFM stations had translators not been placed on them in the intervening 10 years <laughs> between 
LPFM's original conception and the revised, more relaxed version. So they basically the num- could take up the same spot in the dial. They they can actually they can actually be placed closer <laughs> uh, to uh, full power stations than LPFM stations could have been. Um, now they're in a parity situation, which is nice. But if someone's already eaten your lunch, then hey, uh, you're still hungry, right? Uh, the second thing is is that under the old FCC rule. The original FCC rule, there was an amnesty provision, which said, if you are a pirate and we catch you and you stop, you can still apply for an LPFM station. Um, Congress's Radio Broadcasting Preservation Act removed that amnesty provision and the local you know, Community Radio Act did not reinstate that amnesty provision. So any of these people who are running 100 plus stations illegally in New York City are automatically banned. Uh, you can be a pedophile or convicted for drug felonies and still hold an FCC license. But if you broadcast without an FCC license, you're banned uh, completely. And the other thing to keep in mind is that uh, proponents of LPFM did not want these to be kind of shadowy fly-by-night stations. So the LPFM rules require the station to be part of an established not-for-profit organization that has to abide by you know certain elements of the tax code. You got to have a board of directors, blah, blah, blah. And think back to the communities uh, that unlicensed broadcasters are serving primarily in the Brooklyn area. These folks are not engaged in the not-for-profit world. Um, there is uh, an in unquantifiable but definitely discernible element of people who may be involved in these things who are, for example, undocumented. So there is no mechanism for them to engage with LPFM because they lack uh, the organizational uh, coherency, the the organizational longevity or the basic fundamental qualifications the FCC requires for the organization that must effectively sponsor an LPFM station. So it was a good opportunity. It was a missed opportunity uh, in my view. And that is one of the reasons why we have the scene that we have today. Okay. That really helps us to to kind of understand that. Thank you, uh, Professor John Anderson of Brooklyn College here on Radio Survivor. My name is Paul Riesmandel, and and this is the sound of strong communities. And we are talking about a particular type of community radio. In actuality, it just happens not to be licensed by the Federal Communications Commission, and uh, as a result, is is both sort of more uh, threatened, but in some ways more freewheeling than than what happens with licensed radio stations. We're talking about Pirate Radio in Brooklyn, New York. And joining us also is David Gorin, a public radio producer and journalist who's been uh, looking into this scene. And and David, you know, you say that you're listening to all these stations from uh, your home there in, in Flatbush, Brooklyn. And I'm going to ask you a nerdy question. I mean, are you just are you using just any old radio? Does does any old radio pick up all these stations? Or are you having to do something special here? Oh, he's got the best listening lab I've ever seen. Oh, it's <laughs> awesome. I am using a Sony F1 HD, which is a, a very good FM tuner. It's very selective. So it helps to find uh, stations between the cracks. If I'm listening downstairs, I listen on the third floor of a, a wood frame house. So downstairs, I may hear... An, a, somewhat fewer stations but car radios are uh usually have very good tuners and that's where a lot of the people on the street listening hear them so yes i'm trying to find as many stations as i can i'm probably the only fm pirate radio dxer out there that's the term for listening to long distance radio but 
I would say easily the average listener with a, a normal FM radio in their house or apartment in Flappish could hear at least two dozen stations on an average evening or weekend. They come on at the end of the end of the afternoon. Many stay on all night. Some sign off early in the morning. On the weekends, they're on nonstop from Friday to Monday morning. And on holidays, on in the carnival period in September and in the summer, they'll be on longer around holidays. Like Christmas, stations that you normally wouldn't hear on during the day are suddenly on during the day. So it, it, the number seems to come and go. But even the the non-obsessed radio geeks out there, you could you would still hear a lot of stations. You just might be more likely to hear your your more much more local uh, station rather than being able to hear one from a neighborhood or two away. I guess probably. I think also that the people who do listen to the stations they are not listening to every single station, which go from eighty seven nine, which is not even a real FM frequency, to one zero seven nine. I think, like DJ D Life said. It's friends and family, or many of these, I would say at least seven or eight stations are purely religious and located at one of the churches in the area. So I would think that their congregation are, you know, which may number in the dozens to a few hundred, are the primary listeners. So it's very local uh, radio in, in that sense to the people who are listening. David Gorin, thank you so much for joining us from Brooklyn, New York, to tell us more about the pirate radio scene in Brooklyn, New York, and across uh, the city of New York. And we look forward to seeing your pirate Brooklyn pirate radio map uh, forthcoming later this year. Thanks again for joining us, David. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you, John Anderson, professor of journalism at Brooklyn College. Your site is DIYmedia.net. Thanks for helping me out with this exploration of Pirate Radio this week. No problem. Anytime. David Gorin's Brooklyn Pirate Radio map and his documentary on WBAD and his Pirate Radio documentary for the BBC will all be coming out later this year. You can learn more at his website, davidgorin.net, D-A-V-I-D-G-O-R-E-N.net. And of course, you can learn more about everything we've talked about on today's show at our show notes, radiosurvivor.com slash podcast. Look for episode number 133. If you have any comments about the program, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a line, podcast at radiosurvivor.com. Radio Survivor is supported by listeners and readers to learn more about how you can help us keep doing what we do, go to radiosurvivor.com slash support. My name is Paul Reismandel, and on behalf of the Radio Survivor team, we thank you for spending another hour with us. And we look forward to speaking with you in one week.